stories were about little girls who didn't quite look like me. Little girls who looked like me in children's books were marching for civil rights or they were trying to escape from enslavement or they were wrestling with living in the ghetto. They weren't riding unicorns or, you know, winged horses. They weren't off to solve a mystery like Harriet the Spy. I think that I had an intimate relationship with children's imaginative stories as I grew up in Detroit, but I realized those stories were not about me. So we're joined today by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, an associate professor of literacy, culture, and international education at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's the author of a new book, The Dark Fantastic, Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. Um, so thanks for joining us today, Ebony. Thanks so much for having me. So you begin your book by proclaiming that there is an imagination gap in children's literature and media. So what do you mean by that? And what's the scope and nature of that gap? Why does it matter? So in a nutshell, the imagination gap is the space between the kinds of imaginative narratives that we have for children and young adults today and the kind that we really could have. It's also my pushback against education's language around the achievement gap. So much has been made in my field of um, literacy and English language arts education about reading failure and the fact that kids of color, particularly children who are black, Latino, and Native American don't achieve the same results on literacy assessment tests that children who are white and Asian do. Well, one hugely unexamined factor in this is text and identity. So in the text that kids read, there is definitely an imagination gap between the kinds of kids that exist in everything from fairy tales to mysteries to science fiction and the kinds of kids that are in our classrooms. So that's really what I mean. It's sort of my pushback against deficit framings of kids' reading. And the fantastic is a particularly vexed space for thinking about this, right? Uh, you, You say that the doors are often barred to people of color in entering into the realm of the fantastic. So what are some of the ways that happens? You know, I've been thinking quite a bit about this, not just for um, the book, but even beyond the book. The creation of the West and the New World, you know, as constructs there, you know, this is it's a bit of a fantastic thing, right, to go to, you know, a new continent that was supposedly heretofore undiscovered and then to make treaties and scatter quotes with native peoples, indigenous peoples, and then remove them from the land and then to transport an entirely different people group from another continent, a third continent, and bring them over. And so I've begun to grapple with this idea that the very ways in which we conceive of identity, particularly in the West, that's a little bit fantastic. So if you layer fantasy and science fiction, sort of these realms of the literate and narrative imagination on top of that, My goodness, I mean, you're already imagining difference or the other in particular ways as sort of separate from you, as abject, unlike you, when you engage in (laughs) 
colonization or enslavement. And so to layer on top of those founding meta narratives of your culture, these, okay, we're going to make up another culture, we're going to make up another set of possibilities on top of that. I think that's where we end up getting a little weird and woolly. So if you have people who are sort of fantastical or, you know, like monstrous in the real world, then what happens when they encounter fairy tales, fantasy, comics, you know, superhero comics, where you already have made up fantastic people. I think that there is some cognitive dissonance there. So that's kind of the territory that I wanted to explore in and through the dark fantastic. I I would like to take guests a little bit through the journeys of how they got interested in their topics. So what was your relation to these children's stories like growing up as a black girl in Detroit? Oh, wow. I think for me, it was a little bit like being the proverbial kid at the candy store, not inside of the candy store, but having my face and hands pressed up against the class. So stories were about little girls who didn't quite look like me. Little girls who looked like me in children's books were marching for civil rights or they were trying to escape from enslavement or they were wrestling with living in the ghetto. They weren't riding unicorns or, you know, winged horses. They weren't off to solve a mystery like Harriet the Spy. I think that I had an intimate relationship with children's imaginative stories as I grew up in Detroit, but I realized those stories were not about me. And so I developed this odd lens that I'm interested in exploring more as a literacy researcher eventually. You know, so what actually happens, I think this is in the book where, you know, I just pose the questions. What happens when you are confronted with these tantalizing, glittering, imaginative worlds where there's no one who looks like you in that world? Or if you do appear, you're just there for a few seconds, or you're a helper character, you're the magical Negro trope, or you die violently. So how do you deal with that? And I want wonder if we sort of internalize, not that you're becoming white, but it's almost like you develop sort of this white mainstream reader lens so that you're able to read and shape your imagination so that you can deal with those narratives. So it was beyond my imagination to believe that little girls like me would be the protagonist in a fairy tale or a fantasy story in the 1980s when I was growing up in Detroit. I mean, it was just, I mean, that was just ridiculous. So you just dealt with these other avatars who were not you, but then you also had to keep your own identity intact. So it's a, it's a devil of a thing, and I wonder if that's one reason why we're seeing some of the disparity in literacy exam results, but also a-literacy children who just reject reading or reading for pleasure. I don't like reading. I don't like reading that stuff is what I heard a lot when I was teaching K-12 in Detroit about 15, 20 years ago. So um, lots of speculation there, but... So you talk in the book a lot about your own experience as a Harry Potter fan fiction writer, which I guess is one route out of the situation you're describing. So can you share a little bit about how you got drawn to Harry Potter and what perspective you brought to the fan fiction writing? Yes, I would love to. (laughs) 
<laughs> talk about that. I was supposed to be disavowing children's literature at the very moment that I slipped back in. So the Potter series, I think the first book was published when I was 20, so I was not supposed to be reading those books at all. And in fact, when the first couple of books came out, I was super religious at the time. Um, a lot of pastors were saying, even black pastors, this is a book about witchcraft, don't read it. We were in this weird cultural space in the 1990s during the Cultural Wars. And so anyway, I refused to read Harry Potter for a long time. But then when I was teaching fifth grade, one day right before winter break um, in February 2000, a copy of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was left at the threshold of my classroom door. And I went to the kids who were at their lockers, and I said, whose book is this, whose book is this? And I kept asking whose book it was, and since it was nobody's book, I mean, the temptation was there. I took it home, and I was immediately enchanted. By the end of break, I had read all three books, and I began to reread them. I was particularly intrigued by Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban because my father had just passed away about 18 months before that. And it just was very cathartic. The internet was new then, and I began to search to see if any other adults had this weird visceral reaction to the story. And I stumbled upon both fan fiction, which again, was not something I had ever imagined because the author's text was the author's text. So unlike a lot of fan fiction authors, I hadn't written fan fiction as a child independently. I was, I'd was i written original stories, but I always thought an author's text was sacrosanct. I would never have, but then I found fanfiction.net and then um, Harry Potter for Grown Ups Yahoo group. And that's all she wrote. After that, my life changed and I never left children's literature and never left science fiction and fantasy. I refused to grow up. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm still a little stuck on the how you were talking about sort of almost the split personality, the different lenses that you need to navigate the, the world that you're fed where you don't exist. And just and exactly as you said, I, I can to me that's a absolutely logical or reasonable connection to um, literacy challenges and, and disengagement from literature. Just it feels like you're not being your, your true self and not sort of, as we do, bringing the things that stimulate us from one side of our mind or our soul to another yeah. and connecting things. So that to me is just like I'm, I'm still sort of <laughs> thinking how privileged <laughs> well, I, I am. You know, even – yeah. I forgot to say one thing about Harry Potter. So I think that another part of the engagement was that J.K. Rowling, who's been criticized a lot by millennial readers within the past three to five years for not doing diversity and inclusion well enough, which I certainly understand. But J.K. Rowling did something that a lot of the classic fantasy writers did not do, and that was to actually include a few characters of color. So my reader surrogate, Karen Kukonen, talks about reader surrogates and how they connect superhero comics across alternate alterities or alternate universes. So for me, my reader surrogate, and I write about this in the Dark Fantastic 
became Angelina Johnson, who was Fred Weasley's girlfriend at first and then ended up marrying George Weasley, which was weird. And, you know, um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was like, OK, so she gets an interchangeable boyfriend. OK, anyway, I'll, I won't talk about the epilogue. <laughs> epilogue, what epilogue? I really didn't like the, the epilogue of the series. But I just I remember rereading it and I remember she was a tall thin black girl with a lot of braids and she was a chaser I believe on the Gryffindor team so although she only appeared here and there in the books she was enough of a side character where I could build my fan fiction from her so my first fan fiction which kind of went viral insofar as much as anything could go viral in the wild west days of the early social web so this would have been I wrote it in December 2000 through July 2001. Um, it was very popular, but I used Angelina Weasley and aged up, so she was 28. So she was even older than I was at the time. I think I was 21, 22, to comment on some aspects of the series that I liked and disliked. But she was a door for me. She was a way in. I don't know that at that age, after spending um, my childhood and teen years reading a lot of people who were unlike me for pleasure, I don't know that I would have had the courage to write a fan fiction if there had not been a secondary character who was a black girl. So she was my way in. My second, my sequel, I was able to write from Hermione's perspective. But as I note in The Dark Fantastic, I changed perspective. So I wrote Angelina from the first person, but then I wrote Hermione from third person. So what do you make of the retrospective claim of J.K. Rowling that she meant for Hermione to be open to being read as a character of color all along? I feel as if the millennial, young millennial women, and I, I talk about this in the final chapter that are fantastic, I think that reveals generational change for me. So young millennial women were able to read Hermione's markers of difference as blackness because none of the characters, girl protagonists, were that fabulous in any of the books I had read between, I guess, I began reading at age two, so from two to 22, I'd never read a character that good who was a girl of color. I could not imagine Hermione as black. I, I interpreted her bushy hair, which a lot of young millennial women interpreted as a marker that she had some African descent. I gave her, I believe, a Jewish grandmother, and I wrote a whole backstory for her. So that was the closest I could get to diversity and difference, where she had this, you know, she came from a long line of Russian Jewish witches, and, you know, that was how I was interpreting some of the features. But for the millennials, they were able to read her bushy hair as, no, of course she's black. But I just knew better. I had been socialized by my reading to know that black girls were not going to be characters who were at center stage like Hermione was. So I couldn't interpret her that way until I began reading millennials who were then in undergrads. This is about five, seven years ago, maybe a little more. They began writing about Hermione being black. And I was fascinated. Like, how could you read her as black? You know, we don't get the good roles like that, especially not back then. So I do think that there's some generational difference. I don't remember anyone claiming Hermione was black in early Harry Potter fandom. I could be wrong. I don't know 
all corners of it, but I was pretty prominently placed and knew a lot of people, and they're just that wasn't the conversation. To what do you attribute the generational difference? Is it that you know things are still not great, but are less bad than they were? Is it that people the are the, the internet? Okay, go tell t- tell me, share share. I want to know because I want I want some uh, I want some <laughs> hope here. About, like where do we go from here? Talk over you. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, it's yeah, but I really think it's the internet because I think the difference or the key. So the internet has not you know it's not this cure all. It may be the end of our species. I, I rather <laughs> think um, artificial intelligence or bringing back some ba- you know weird space bacteria from Mars. Our first Mars missions that could do it. But when I was reading as a little girl in the 1980s, I was very much in a bubble, a nice, cushiony silo. You couldn't talk to anybody. I mean, you talk to your friends who read the same books, but, you know, you had a closed set readership as opposed to an open set readership. So a closed set readership is that the range of interpretations that are possible are more limited. So when I was reading Anne of Green Gables, for instance, one misreading that I did do, I will say I did deliberately read blackness into a character in Gorilla of Inglefly just because I wanted to be part of that world so much, although I knew by then that she would not have been black because she was described as dark. And I knew by then that when white writers of that period, Edwardian white writers, were describing someone as dark or swarthy, I knew they weren't talking about black people because they would have said black people and probably not in as nice of a term as, as that. But I did read myself there. But I had no one to discuss this with. As a matter of fact, sometimes some of my reading preferences and choices got, you know, generated a lot of ridicule up through my 20s. So I think the nerd revolution happened when I was like in my late 20s. So, you know, you kept that to yourself. Contrast that with millennials. So I was born in 77. Someone who was just 10 years younger than me, who was born in 87, would have been only hmm, eight years old during the year of the internet, 1995. I was 18. That matters. So as soon as I could find digital affinity groups, I did. So by 1997, I was a part of the Kindred Spirits listserv out of the University of Prince Edward Island in Canada. So as soon as I could find that kind of connection, I found it. But I was 20. You know, I'm pretty much, I'm done growing up. But if I had been 8, 9, or 10, then I have other people to discuss my reading with. Oh, and one more thing before I let go of the mic. Um, (laughs) There are, one of the things that kind of horrifies me is that I have now met a lot of millennials who said they were tweens and teens and maybe even a little bit younger than middle school reading our fan fictions and our discussions in early Harry Potter fandom in groups like Harry Potter for Grown Ups or Fictionally or AdultFanFiction.net. So not only did you have this possibility of being exposed to this huge range of interpretations, not just for Potter, but for all of literature, all of life, which has really blossomed with the advent of the social web, you also had this situation where parents were not monitoring. It probably would not have been possible to monitor things. I mean, we were less surveilled in some ways than the kids today, Generation Xers and Boomers and everybody before, um, because we were able to roam, but it was within those bubbles, within those silos. Now we watch kids' bodies more, but their minds are far less surveilled because they have first computers and laptops and now these individual smartphones. They can read anything. They have access to anything. So that's what I think is different and why they're able to interpret literature and life 
much differently than we did. It, but th- that to me sounds like a mostly hopeful story. I mean, I, and, yeah, and, I, I mean, I realize that less, <laughs> the less surveil. I mean, that, that's at least a positive take. Less surveilled, of course. There's some things maybe that the, you would like yeah. to help guide them through and help them contextualize. But but in terms of talking about just a complete absence of self and resonant stories in literature, to then imagine that there are many different interpretations and kinds of literature and the ability to create your own interpretations and write your own stuff. That to me feels like, you know, that's a little more of the internet optimism that we used to traffic in. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, yes, I hear you. So I'm I'm curious, does that make you, I mean, as you thinking about kids and literacy and imagination now, are you feeling more positive? Are there other things that we can do or you are doing or we need to be doing to kind of leverage the good aspects of that and address the maybe the the more troublesome ones? Yeah, I think we need a bit more research. What's happened to the web over the past seven to 10 years is quite troubling. I think when the web was a little bit more balkanized, there were still demons and dragons and dangers. But when the web was a bit more balkanized and less amplified and less, you know, like we have the ways in which kids are getting the web now is through these smartphones and, you know, sometimes tablets, but those are mainly younger kids. And so I I read avidly Pew's internet surveys of teen digital behavior, how they're using the web, how they're using the internet. And I think that because of the profit motive, because early on, I think there was a lot of excitement around the Internet, but I think that early attempts to monetize it were hit and miss. Now, companies have an incentive to keep your eyeballs on only certain sites. So you had to, you, what you would do um, maybe 15, 20 years ago, and I know I'm not telling you to anything you don't know, so I'm sure you know about how the web was before the advent of the Boolean search engines like Google. So you kind of had to look for what you wanted to get to. You were spending a lot of time on Harry Potter-specific sites. Today, um, I remember about 10 years ago when Tumblr and YouTube became sort of these fandom meta hubs. Before you were sort of siloed in your own individual little fandoms, you would go to your fan sites. Sometimes there would be cross-pollination, particularly depend, you know, if the fandoms were chastened, if there were people writing for multiple fandoms, you could find information from people like that. But then about, you know, the beginning of Obama's first term, so 08, 09, 10, 11, in there, we began getting more of a centralization of fan communities, affinity groups, you know, and now I would say certainly all my fandoms are between Tumblr, YouTube, Somewhat Instagram, but Instagram I think people use for different purposes. If you're a cosplayer, you'll go over there. But I think that that really matters. Like how kids, particularly young people, were accessing fandom, early millennials versus late millennials in Generation Z. I do think that the amplification and the speed and intensity of some of these technologies have really taken a turn for the worse, where kids are really struggling with alert. You know, most people are in multiple fandoms. Now, I mean, I am too, but that was something that, you know, I mean, you had one or two maybe huge fandoms. Like when I was in Harry Potter fandom, I dabbled in Buffy, dabbled in Lord of the Rings, but I really didn't do much else but Potter because that was where my attention was centered. But 
when I got on Tumblr, and that became sort of my main where I would navigate to to do digital fandom, I picked up a bunch of other fandoms along the way. And so then you get swept up in their controversies. And by then, I'm in my early 30s. I can't imagine being 12 or 13 and having to deal with that much information, that many narratives, and that many identity clashes or cultural clashes and hold all that in my head. That's a central focus of your book, in a way. Almost every chapter centers on a moment of a culture clash as white audiences are pushing back against choices being made of casting, characterization, as these YA novels are being brought onto television, onto film, so forth. So what's leading to these conflicts? How can we think about the disputes that are emerging, specifically around the inclusion of people of color into the YA universes? I think, first of all, I want to say something that I know when this airs, it might get me more fans. I actually think that some of the impetus toward diversity and inclusion to, okay, let's include a character of color on the part of creators, whether they're, you know, book authors or comics creators or showrunners or television film executives. I think some of it is noble. So maybe they don't understand, you know, racial exclusion or gender sexuality in particular ways, but they will say, yes, we hear you. So, okay, we're going to cast this character as black or as Latino or Asian and okay. But what I think we haven't done is we haven't really moved audiences from those initially formed expectations. So two things follow. In a mainstream science fiction, fantasy, and comics, where you have a mostly white cast, where you might have one or two usually not even to uh, a character of color who will be part of the regular cast. I, if that character of color does anything other than be on the sidelines, if that character of color assumes center stage, everything that young people across demographics have been taught, exposed to, and told says that that character is out of place, like that is not the place of that character. So I looked at black girls, but we've seen it with with other identities. And so what happens is if a black girl becomes the sacrificial heroine or becomes the love interest or becomes the witch who can save the world, that's just not what a black character or a black person's place is in any world, real or imagined. And so, therefore, young audiences react pretty violently to that because it's, you know, they're dreaming. It's the realm of play and imagination, and then there's this thing that is out of play, like, and they want to make it right. So, you know, we are beginning to slowly move in the right direction as far as diversity and inclusion in media, entertainment, and narratives However, what we have not done is we have not primed the audience to reimagine and rethink who could be in the center of the spotlight on stage. That hasn't moved as quickly as including characters of color here and there. One of the things that I find equally disturbing is the sort of, I mean, we're supposed to be in this Afrofuturistic renaissance right now. So Black Panther, you know, made almost a a trillion dollars. This was a year when the big six YA 
publishers finally published four YA novels with black girl protagonists, including Tomi Adeyemi's masterful Children of Blood and Bone. I got a chance to meet her a couple of weeks ago at NCT in Houston. Here is my concern. Because I'm also a fangirl um, and I do the Comic-Con circuit, I'm looking at which narratives get these huge audiences and which don't. So I looked at the amount of fan fiction that had been written for Black Panther. I looked to see whether or not these four black girl narratives had any merchandising, had any you know buzz at Comic-Con. I looked to see what was being fangirled and what was not or fanboyed and what was not. And I honestly don't think that what I trace as the dark fantastic cycle has been broken because we can include and move to the center all we like, but audiences have not yet been made aware that everything we've read prior to having diverse media has primed us to move the more mainstream stuff into the center of our imaginative space. And so that's something I've been really keenly interested in, and I'd like to eventually write a follow-up. Maybe I'll write something like The Black Fantastic or something and really think through that, because I don't think it's as simple as, okay, let's just make movies and have all black casts or all Asian casts. Or, you know, I also wonder, well, one of the things the studios tell us and the publishers tell us is that that doesn't make as much money, even, you know, um, embarrassingly enough from people of color. And I think we would do well to examine why. I, you know, we might think about white privilege as it relates to interpretation. I mean, oh, we start with yeah. the fact that even when Star, when Star Wars adds characters of color, studies are showing that thin say is not centrally central to the fan fiction that's emerging there, right? So, yes, so white absolutely. fans are choosing to ignore these characters to rewrite Hermione as a character of color. The case has to be made around the fact that her race is unmarked, right? It doesn't carry those markers of darkness that you were talking about in earlier works. But we're used to thinking of unmarked characters as white, not as having other possibilities. And so that reverses white privilege there. And we get to the point where Rue, as you describe in Hunger Games, is very explicitly marked as black. And yet there's an outrage that she's cast as black in the film because white readers read over her race in that case. Right. So all of those give us some signs of white privilege in the reading process, quite apart from what role it might play in the production process. Yeah, I think you're right. I definitely think you're right that there is an interpretive gap <laughs> as well as an imagination gap. Absolutely. I mean, that sort of takes me back to, your earlier comment about kind of learning how to read and learning how to put your, your white lens on, right? And that we all, you know, we're kind of swimming in this invisible white culture. And then even if you have um, kind of internally consistent characters of color in these um, media objects, that it's still like we're, we haven't been trained to, to see them or to, to expect them. And so, I'm, so, I mean, coming back to this next project, I wonder how, how, how do you think about the process of helping to untrain us? You know, what does that look like? <laughs> I think that um, what we have, we don't fully have yet, but I do think we have some visions for what we need. 
to, you know, finding ways that audiences might accept those visions, I think, is key. For instance, the works of Octavia Butler and N.K. Demison in particular, I think they're iconoclastic, they're innovative, they're for adults, which is something that I hope to see more in the children's literature space. But, you know, we we had a generation ago, we had Virginia Hamilton, who was building this Black American fantastic during the Black Arts Movement. So she had everything from A Mystery in the House of Dystrier to, you know, she was a Black folklorist for children. She had The People Could Fly was one of my favorite um, stories. One of the things I do want to say about that is that I think um, I'm coming out of the dark fantastic thinking through, particularly because I finally have a literary agent who is wonderful and who is trying to sell the novel that I talk about in the dark fantastic as not selling. I had two huge agents and then they said, well, there's no audience for this. There's no market for this. One of the things I've been talking about about with one of my good friends, um, American Indians and Children's Literature founder, Debbie Reese, is the fact that Tolkien's way of world building, which most fantasy writers use, might be fraught and problematic for indigenous peoples and peoples of color. So what Tolkien did in order to build what he called a mythology for the English, because he believed that the English did not have a mythology, leaving the matter of Britain aside, because I was just, when I read that, I was just kind of wondering, you know, why would you say that the English people don't have this mythology like the Norse do? Because, you know, you have King Arthur, you have Camelot. Anyway, um, leaving Tolkien aside, I'm sure there's some scholar listening who might say, no, this is why he said that. Anyway, I was intrigued by that because similarly, as a black American, I think it can be very, very challenging to do myth building in the same way, which is why there's very little black American fantasy, even out of what's been published. Octavia's done it, NK's done it, very few. Most of what's come out has been from Nigerian American, Jamaican American, et cetera, authors. Um, we had one book that came out, Alea Don Johnson's The Summer Prince, five years ago, that used the magical futuristic Brazil, and then Brazilians really got upset about it because of cultural appropriation and misinterpretation because one of the things Debbie and I have been talking through is that the whole enterprise of mythopoesis, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which was Tolkien's word for making up myths, is sort of cobbling together myths from here, there, and everywhere. And what we're finding now during the age of the social web is that it really is offensive to a lot of people. So, I mean, we're just hearing rumblings of discontent, for instance, from people who are continental Africans about Black Panther and Wakanda, saying how this is problematic. This is an American-imposed lens on Africa, which is a real place. And so there's been a groundswell of essays from African writers and thinkers who are saying, you know, if you think you're just going to cobble together a bunch of different African cultures and build this pan-African paradise without actually dealing with Africa, think again. And so I've been collecting some of those essays as I've been thinking through that. That kind of makes you bristle at times because, you know, you look at George R. R. Martin, who's as American as Ryan Coogler, and he gets none of that, you know, when he goes to England and Scotland and Northern European cultures, British Isle cultures, and he cobbles together things and invents Westeros. So I'm just thinking about 
coming out of the dark fantastic, I wonder if the problem is even stickier than I could have ever imagined. So not only is it about interpretation and reader, author, audience identity, but man, it's like, how do you build a world that doesn't recolonize or have the colonial or problematic features of the known world? It's kind of a sticky, um, bothersome thing, and I'm not sure how to solve it yet. So in a sense, Tolkien talks about subcreation. That is, we are creating a yes. second reality built off of yes. the raw materials of, for him, the world that God created. But in yes. reality, it's also the world that history has created, the world that colonization has created, the world that white supremacy has created. So yes. the raw materials are already contaminated as you enter into oh, the genres. Uh, powerful. So yes. how do we <laughs> purify or transform them in an alchemical way to something that subcreation can take place around. And that's a really vexing challenge, I think. I think Octavia did it, Sam to a point, but I think Octavia really was moving, you know, I mean, that's why she wrote Kindred 20 years ago. I'm telling you, I was like, why did she write a time travel book about slavery? I was still in this period where, you know, in my life, in my early 20s, I didn't want to think about slavery. Who wants to think about slavery? You're trying to escape from racialized oppression. That's why I went to fantasy and science fiction and comics. I didn't have to think about being a racialized young woman walking through the world and dealing with all that. But I understand why Octavia wrote Kindred and why it was one of her early works. She had she dealt with enslavement. And then in her Xenogenesis series, basically, well, she has different answers, right? I mean, you're familiar with her, with all of her works, you know. So the Xenogenesis series, it's like the alien invasion might be a good thing. She has the parable, the sower, the parable, the talents, duology, which I think was going to be an entire series if she hadn't passed so early, where you redo religion and, you know, a little you know, a young black girl, she didn't call her little, but she's 15, 16 years old. She invents a new religion and then leads an exodus off planet. So I really think that getting visions as radical as that, that break away from sort of the Tolkien frame, although I love, 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 love him and everything he wrote, but I don't know if that framing is going to be one that we can follow. Certainly as I'm rewriting my novel um, and trying to do some black American, trying to build a black American fantastic world or rebuild it along with my agent and friends. And, you know, I can't just go and grab like 12 different African cultures and cobble together some things, not going into the 2020s and have it, you know, and not expect people who are from those cultures to have something to say about it. I have to figure out, well, you know, do you move? it to an AU, you know, it's an alternate universe. How do you shape it um, in ways that, and I think that people are going to be asking more complicated questions. And you know what? It may not be that we'll be able to do it. Perhaps the people growing up now who are getting those questions and um, having those questions articulated for them very early on will be able to move us further. At least I hope so. I mean, it strikes me the comparison from sort of the UK reaction to George R. R. Martin to an African reaction is it's been happening for a lot longer. It's a lot more common, you know, and I wonder how much of this is kind of getting used to 
having your culture, I don't know if appropriated or celebrated or recognized and, and drawn upon in other ways, that over time, as that becomes, that may become more normal or more respectful, or as you're saying, something that we can engage and talk about that then gives us the opportunity to do that next round of creation. I think so. I mean, of course, people from the UK sort of talked about the accents being all wrong sure. for Game of Thrones, the HBO series, but England is a really interesting place. In particular, there's been so many different invasions even before, you know, like the Romans and then the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes and the Norman Conquest. and the, So I guess, <laughs> you know, you, ha you have that built into the culture. And also, Africa is still dealing with Sub-Saharan Africa is still dealing with colonization and not only the effects of European colonization, but of course there's recolonization. Um, there's a lot of talk about the role of China in Africa, for instance. So therefore, for a bunch of Americans, even black Americans who are long removed from Africa to go over and to world build using these different cultures. For some people, it was fine. You know, there was a, a mixed reaction. So there were plenty of Africans who really enjoyed Wakanda, but I have seen at least a half dozen essays where Africans disliked sort of that cobbled together world building and talked about how Western it was, how that too was a cultural appropriation. They especially didn't like African-Americans or black Americans dressing up in various African countries and cultures, clothing or garb, because, you know, they're, they're right. They said, no, some of these garments are ceremonial. You don't know what you're doing. Our culture is not a costume. And so you have this, you have indigeneity issues there. And um, yeah, it just might be more complicated. We can't do, in the real world, we can't do everything that white men can do. So <laughs> in the imaginative world, in the creative world, certainly, we, we do have to be more mindful and the rules may be different. So, and I think that's something that we're going to have to wrestle with. And I think people are really trying to be mindful and really trying to wrestle with. So, so I think so far we're assuming that fa the fantastic is the battlefield. But children's <laughs> literature is always pulled toward realism as well, right? So if we think yeah. of The Hate You Give as exemplifying an alternative tradition where stories of black people are told in a realist, historical, and contemporary manner, that seems to be a well-trod path. So why yeah. is the fantastic worth fighting for in the face of some relative success of realist fiction. Oh, wow. You gave me a nice opening to quote this issue that I raised at the beginning of the theory chapter I wrote for The Dark Fantastic. So when I was in Harry Potter fandom, I decided my sequel to my fan fiction was going to be set in Brazil because that was the most magical place I could think of. I mentioned Alea Dawn Johnson's The Summer Prince, which was set in Brazil. She's an African-American writer insofar as much as I know. And so for us, you know, within black culture, there's this, especially 20th century, late 20th century black cultures, there was a lot of talk about Brazil being a place where most of the people from Africa win, and slavery, you know, was different there, so they didn't lose as many of their customs and traditions. And so there was this conversation, and a Brazilian anthropologist whose handle was, I believe, Makunaima, said something or wrote something that just floored me. I saved it so that I could <laughs> write about it almost 20 years later. And he talked about 
this. Myth-making is dangerous for subordinate peoples. Your imagination is more controlled by dominant social formations than you're probably willing to admit. Only by deep and wide engagement with history can we begin to reconstruct a reasonable notion as to what has happened and why. So here's the thing. You know, the world is too much with all of us, right? But for peoples of color, for indigenous folk, for queer folk, for people from minority religions, such as Jewish folk, I think that realism is something we have to deal with, we have to grapple with just for survival. However, I think that the dream space, the imaginative space, the the reparative space of the fantastic is important. First, because it's generative. So if we're only stuck in reality, if we're only stuck in the present and in the space-time that we can perceive, then we don't move forward. We end up enacting the same dramas over and over again. And so it is in the dream space that we can we can begin to try out or test out different relationships. And, I mean, of course, that's just, I mean, Atterbury's talked about that. Mendelssohn's talked about that. Most fantasy theorists have told us that. But I think when you add on the layer of race, visible difference, ethnicity, et cetera, I think that the landscape shifts underneath our feet a bit where we really need to do both, which is hard and untenable and and kind of unfair because we have to grapple with history while we're dreaming while awake. And that is really, I'm finding it's really hard. But, you know, I mean, after a while you do, you know, I did have a eureka moment this fall when working through my revisions on the novel where, you know, because I said, okay, well, if black Americans are human and all humans have mythologies and fantasies and dreams. What did we dream of? How did we dream? Like one of my friends, um, William Anderson, who's a digital friend of mine, um, a social commentator, activist, I used to love his Twitter handle, The Slave Singing. And it was like, you know, we, we think of slavery as sort of this place of abjection and who wanted, you know, like they were not, they were dehumanized, not human. But if they were really, if you take as your organizing premise that enslaved people, native people, you know, maybe, you know, know, the last surviving person in a village, you know, they don't even, they haven't even seen Europeans yet, but they're being decimated by these diseases. If a Jewish person who's dealing with persecution in the middle of World War II, if even that person who's, the world is so much with them and they're under so much duress, but even that person has dreams, has fantasies, can move into this dream space. What is that dream like. Schomburg Center director Kevin Young said tantalizingly, forget cosmopolitanism. Let's explore the trapped black mind as cosmos. And I am just like, wow, just really sitting with that. And so I think that is where the fantastic and all speculative narrative is probably going to move within the next 10, 20 years, because people are going to demand it. And some of us can't build Tolkien-style narratives lest we offend someone. So I do think that that's how we move forward. 
Well, that that leaves us some interesting challenges for the future. It's been an enormously <laughs> interesting conversation. It depends <laughs> on just some of the complexities of things that you explore in uh, the Black Fantastic. I hope listeners okay. will check out the book. I uh, can't wait to read this book and the next. Um, <laughs> yes, really... I'm going to be sending a proposal. <laughs> I have a lot to say. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. I was just kind of floored on a bunch of different fronts from sort of interesting specific insights to the way that she brought together all these different literatures and concepts and conversations in ways that that sort of felt like these, you know, the different strands from kind of the arc of the web and the internet to renewed attention or maybe new attention to diversity and inclusion in uh, film and literature, all these different things together and kind of gave me a sense of coherence or a lens perhaps onto it that I didn't have before. I also feel like I'm still digesting that. I can't, I'm really excited to read the book. I was very happy and honored that we were able to get the book for our book series at New York University, the post-millennial book series that I edit with Karen Tonkson. So I've had a privilege of reading it multiple times at various stages of development, but it is really a strong book and really a book that opens up some new spaces for us to think about genre, about race, about childhood, about the changes in pop culture that we spend our podcasts talking and thinking about. Yes to what you just said in sort of a big intellectual and practical way, but I I also really appreciate from her language to her bio kind of this attention to, to kids and to youth and to thinking about where this manifests in learning and literacies and the importance of not having it just be rooted in, you know, a podcast or in books or academic circles, but thinking about what do you do to bring that into, whether it's the classroom or into the lives of young people and particularly young people of color. I think her biography is so interesting in that regard as some, you know, growing up reading this stuff and struggling to make it fit to being a, a classroom teacher in an elementary school setting to discovering fan fiction and becoming a fan fiction writer in, in the early days of Harry Potter to being dug, doubling up as a professor of education and a young adult novelist all <laughs> give her different vantage points into this question of the black fantastic and what that might mean it is all child-centered right she is very attentive to children and yet so much of the book ends up being how adults respond critically defensively to even the mildest step into creating uh inclusion for people of color and the contemporary children's literature yeah i mean that is at the while we might have hope and attention to um, young people and their capacity to not be burdened by some of the things that we're burdened with and to be able to create, you know, to sort of bend our current reality to an, a, a different future. You, you come back to how much power the, the existing structure has and visits and how resistant it is. All these systems are in so many ways to change, um, even change that we feel like we want. And I, you know, I, I couldn't help but feeling like there's some shooting ourselves literally in, in the foot when we have these opportunities to do things different. 
So I always like to add into our conversations a moment. I think of it, what's making me sappy this week, um, <laughs> sort of playing off of pop culture happy hours, what's making us happy this week. In this case, the story, the piece that I would have introduced in the discussion is a, is a graphic novel by Jeremy Love called Bayou. Uh, alas, it's an incomplete graphic novel, which speaks to the degree to which things get shut down in the current media scene. So we wrote two volumes toward a three-volume series about a young black girl coming up in the South in the mid part of the 20th century, full of realism and threats of lynching and so forth around the edges. But she has a kind of Alice in Wonderland-like journey into the black fantastic. And so if we're thinking about what do slaves imagine, what do oppressed people imagine, a lot of what she's haunted with as she enters Wonderland are racist iconography of the white society who become the monsters that she battles with, uh, including Uncle Remus, who becomes a propagandist that she struggles with. But there's also an attempt in the book to reclaim the Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox tradition as an American mythology that African-American readers can reclaim after 100 years of racist interpretations of it and find, drill back inside of. So what's interesting about Love's work is he finds the racist past the, the most fertile soil for both realism and for the fantastic and pushes it forward. But we're seeing books like that emerge right now that are grappling with these issues. And I think Ebony describes really powerfully the challenges of how do we build off of a world where everything's been colonized, every, everything is appropriation if you're an African-American writer trying to build a space of fantasy for your kids. Everyone's already claimed the raw materials. So how do you make them your own? And then even when you do, white privilege shapes interpretation in such a way that people are angry that when Rue is brought to the screen in the Hunger Game movies, she is black, even though she was designed as a black character in an explicitly black context from the very beginning of the writing of those books. How long do you think this lasts? I mean, do you think that is a that's a natural sort of trajectory where as you know, as you continue to have the conversations and to kind of push back against earlier expectations, become more adept at you know, less kind of box checking style representation and more internally consistent, you know, that we kind of do some of the things that we talked about today, that that starts to become more natural and those barriers uh, diminish or dissolve? Or is this, you know, sort of the next, uh, is this the next um, mountain we need to climb? Well, it's definitely a space we need to be paying attention to, right? And it's very easy to, to treat children's fictions as timeless and that'll take care of itself. And in fact, it's a space we really need to be deeply attentive to as we think about the changes that are taking place in representation everywhere else in pop culture. I mean, So I hope it's a topic we'll come back to. Yeah, I mean, and just going back to what Ebony was saying about sort of about literally about her youth and reading and the internal changes that it or developments that it forced within her. I mean, that's pretty compelling to say we need to get the stuff that young people are exposed to right sooner rather than later. It's and yet Ebony is also very, very articulate about the resilience of youth. She has a beautiful mm -hmm. essay on growing up reading Anne of Green Gables as a black girl in Detroit and how the story spoke to her so powerfully and became a place she chose to live in in her imagination over time. So there's no easy assumption here that simply mm. 
black characters are the only way you can go or that black kids should read black books and nothing else, which is often the caricature of these debates. She's saying that they should be part of the mix, that we should all read the stories of black characters so that they become part of the fabric of our culture. Not that as a black kid, she's restricted to reading books with black characters. Well, um, this has been great, Henry. Thank you so much for making this happen and and for all of your reflections um, on the book and on Ebony and on culture and the world that we live in. It's been fun. See you next time. All right. You take care. We're honored to have our show produced by Andrea Alarcón, Rennie Svernovsky, and Sophie Maggi, with the support of many colleagues at USC and, and Library of Congress and elsewhere. Bennett.